Welcome back to another episode of All Things Red on today's show, or huh, show, I don't know if I say that, but um, I have Alex Quinn. Alex Quinn, uh, my man, how we doing? Doing well, appreciate you uh, having me on. No, I definitely wanted to get you on here. So you and I uh, first met when we were at Hobart, you were playing hockey, I was playing lacrosse. Yeah, the, the two tall guys at the party. Yeah, literally. Um no, you guys were always a good time and stuff like that. So, like, how did you um, – I'm always curious when it comes to college and stuff like that. Like, where – like, where would you grow up? Like, why why Hobart out of all the other – all the schools you could have gone to? And, and then, like, why yeah. did you even want to play, like, college hockey to start? Yeah, I mean, so I grew up in Boston, Mass. Uh, actually, both my parents are from Montreal. So, I guess the Canadian dual citizenship helps with playing hockey my dad was a coach played forever my i'm the youngest of three so my brother played my sister played um so hockey was always you know since we started playing at three years old but um i knew i was going to play college hockey i actually i graduated high school in 2011 and instead of going to college i decided to do a year of junior hockey in new hampshire through that, you know, you get a lot of looks in colleges, D1, D3. Um, you also get a lot of looks at other junior leagues, whether it be the USHL at West um, or others. But I was lucky enough to get a, uh, a scholarship at Hobart to play there. Um, took the opportunity right when I got it. Um, I was actually aging out, too. You can only play until you're 20, 21 junior. So I was uh, a 21-year-old freshman. <laughs> and uh that's probably not what you guys get in lacrosse but with hockey it's pretty no. significant um but yeah and then from there um went to went to hobart upstate new york and uh fell up the school I and mean, as you know it's a beautiful campus the lake i'm out there yeah i mean you can only use the lake for like three months of the year but <laughs> pontoon um, season exactly um can you hear me? Yep. Oh, okay. I thought I dropped you for a second. I'm going to count three and then go again. Um, no worries. When you were getting recruited, like hockey-wise and stuff like that, what? Why did you just choose Hobart because of the campus and stuff? Or did they have a specific, like, major or something like that that you want to pursue? Or, like, what was the whole, like, thing behind that? Because for me – I, I, like, I chose Hobart because some of the schools that were recruiting me, like, I wanted to play Division One, because, um, like, my mindset was, like, all right, if I'm going to play in college, like, I want to at least be, like, training and playing with, like, the best um, at the highest level, even if it's not, like, a Duke, UNC, Maryland, a school like that, um, but Hobart always had a stacked lacrosse schedule, so that was, like, and obviously it's a really good school for what we'll get into in a second. Um, so that was, like, the reason I did it. It had nothing to do with, like, campus or anything like that. So, like, what was, like, the main, like, you know, the the main thing for you that made you pull the trigger on Hobart? Yeah, one was the fact that, you know, it was East Coast. I knew the hockey is usually probably better on the East Coast. So that's one thing that drew me there. But, um, you know, I was honestly incentivized by the coach. Um, there were – a couple offers that I had, um, whether it be D3 or, or some D1, that always told me to do another year of juniors. And I honestly was at the point where I just wanted to move forward, wanted to get to college, get a good degree, play hockey if I could, and you know just move on with my life mm -hmm. um, rather than just playing junior hockey. But um, honestly, I was I knew a couple guys from Boston that actually were 
were players there on the hockey team, like Brendan Fitzgerald, who I grew up with, and some of the other guys. So I had a couple of the local guys telling me it was a great school. The academics there were great. Um, you know, I, I think when I went to go visit, I made the decision to go there after the visit just because this campus was great location, you know, upstate New York, something that I wasn't used to. Um, and I just think it was a whole package rather than looking at, you know, some other schools like Hamilton or, or Trinity uh, or even Union. You know, those are some of the schools I was looking at. They just didn't give you that warm fuzzies. You know, usually when you step on campus and you look for what the right college atmosphere would be, you hope to have everything from, you know, a good campus, good location, is it next to a town, uh, is it good people, do you know anybody there, is your network, you know, sometimes it's hard to go into a place and you don't know anybody. So that was some of the stuff that kind of just was interesting to me. And at that point, I was able to get, like I said, a scholarship and, and go there and play hockey. Yeah, are you naturally more like a homebody? Or are you more? I mean, I know you, so it's different. But like, true, <laughs> <laughs> it, it definitely felt good to be close to home. Um, I mean, still, it's five five and a half hours from Boston, so you're still separate from you know the rest of my family. But I still have family in Canada, so it's even closer to go up to Montreal or Toronto and uh, and see family there. But no, I, I knew I wanted to get out of New England. So that, that was one thing, but at least it was close enough where I could go back and for holidays and so forth. No, exactly. Did you, um, so when you got to Hobart, what did you, what you major in? Cause I mean, I know you're, you're doing real estate now, but was that, was that like always the plan or? No, I actually going into college, I thought I was going to try to stay within, you know, sports related business, whether that be a, a sports agent itself, which found out that you need to go to law school for that one. So I scratched that one off the books pretty quickly, but the, uh, my dad does real estate. So he always, you know, told me whether it be residential or commercial, you know, there's always an opportunity to get into that. You don't have to go to school again for it. Um, but you know, the way I looked at it was, you know, go and get some type of degree that, you know, there's going to be reciprocated into the real world going to a liberal arts school is a little bit tough because you take the classes, but you don't necessarily have a direct major, like some of the larger schools, you know, some people just go strictly for um, accounting. Some people just go strictly for um, business. And I just thought I needed to kind of be well-rounded in order to have enough degrees to go forward with, um, you know, whatever it was. So I actually was a double major and a minor. So I did economics and history as two majors. And then I was a minor in law and society. And um, it honestly was just, I didn't even mean to do it. It was just the classes I took got me enough credits. Yeah, that's funny. I, uh, funny thing about being in real estate now too, is that I took econ two years in a row, failed both times. I thought that intro to econ class they taught was so hard. It was. No, you're, you're not the only one to say that either. <laughs> yeah, it was so hard. I failed it the first year, and then the second year, I could, like came back, and I was just like, all right, like I got it this year. Like I failed it last year. I you know studied with the professors. Like I know what is going to be coming. Still studying, working my ass off, or at least I thought. Like, nope, still failed it. <laughs> yeah, no, trust me. Hobart in itself is such a hard school. Some people don't think about it that way, but like I thought it was super grinding. A lot of papers, you know, 
the late nights in the library. I'm sure people are going to roll their eyes when they hear that. But, you know, Hobart required you to do that. And then on top of it, as you know, being on a team is, you know, you really got to learn how to time manage. No, exactly. Yeah, I – well, after – I mean, I transferred. So, after I transferred from Hobart, I – that's what my initial thought was. And, like, we joke all the time. I was just with um, one of my buddies, Greg, in Brooklyn this past weekend. And he was introducing me to a couple of his friends, like just moving here to New York. And he was like, oh, yeah, this is uh, one of my boys from Mercyhurst. And they were like making jokes about Mercyhurst. And they're like, how would you describe Mercyhurst? I'm like, it's like the University of Phoenix, but with a campus. And I say that as a joke because my first my first couple of weeks at Mercyhurst after being at Hobart for two and a half years, I was like, yo, this place is a joke. Like the workload yeah. is so minimal compared to like what was at Hobart. It was a grind. I mean, and I, again, I didn't mean to do two majors, but, you know, writing all those papers, doing all those tests. I mean, I'm, I'm happy I got a nice paper receipt for my uh, college tuition showing that I went to Hobart because I guess it carries some weight. Yeah. Well, the one thing that it taught me, especially because like at Mercyhurst, they didn't have it as much. And it sounds like I'm bashing that place, even though I love it, is like just like how hands on and how like laser they fo- like really like pounded in like the networking, like constantly networking, like from the time you're a freshman to, um, you know, kind of building a network for yourself, meeting new people, like putting yourself out there because it'll pay dividends and stuff like that. Um, do you think that, cause like you're in real estate now, do you like look back and are you like all, all those things help me or like how, how do you think you're successful? Like in the endeavor that you're in now, does Hobart have anything to do with it? It does. I, I think career services at Hobart, like you said, you know, you start freshman year and you try to get matched with, uh, you know, a mentor to really help you in the real world. And I think mm-hmm. that was kind of my first stab at cold calling, reaching out to people I didn't know, using the Hobart as kind of uh, an intro or an interest generator, right? I mean, they focus on the alumni to, to really be the difference maker at Hobart. I'm pretty sure they got awards on that, but that was my first kind of like, all right, use Hobart, reach out to everybody that was in sports related businesses, whether they're an agent for CAA or if um, somebody was related to the NHL, you know, those are just some little avenues I went into, but it opened up the door for me at least to like not be shy on getting on the phone with somebody easily cold calling somebody, feeling confident, being able to generate or generate any type of uh, interest with them just on personal level or business level. So I do give credit to, to Hobart for at least getting you out there early on in your college career. Just be like, all right, if you have an idea of what you want to do after college, here are some people you should reach out to. They'll be a good mentor. And from there, you know, it's a spider web. You talk to one person, they introduce you to another. And you know, that's honestly how I started getting into real estate. Yeah, no, I I completely agree. It's kind of funny because now that I'm here in New York, um, I know we were talking about it a little bit before we hopped on and started recording. And I was telling you how, you know, I ended up getting the opportunity that I got. And it was years and years of like, I don't want to say network. I mean, yes, networking, but at the same time, like doing the work in like parallel that like led up to this. But it is like kind of crazy to me, like when I talk to some buddies and stuff like that, how like most people don't like most people can't comprehend it. I'm not saying this in like a preaching way, but just more so of like picking your brain on what your thoughts about it are about like how much like 
you know, cold networking or like making a cold call or like just putting yourself out there could really like put you in a completely different position that almost like to a certain degree seems like almost impossible or like surreal, if that makes sense. What do you think about that? I completely agree. I mean, I started my real estate just from people I knew. Right. So yeah, my dad was a real estate is a real estate agent, resi real estate agent. He worked for century 21 for about 10, 15 years. Um, and one of my best friends from high school worked at the number one privately held developer in the country at WS development. Mm-hmm. So those are two avenues I had just from, you know, people that I'm very close with, but I didn't end up getting my first job until I connected with 50 other people and interviewed with so many different firms, whether it be, you know, corporate America giants or some family boutiques. But uh, I just think, you know, it, it takes a different breed sometimes, you know, this industry is not for everybody. Mm-hmm. Um, I think if you are comfortable in talking with somebody, have a little bit more of uh, you know, persistence, attitude and some urgency, you're going to be able to do well in this industry. It's not rocket science. It's being able to pick up the phone and calling somebody. Mm-hmm. But I, I think I was lucky enough at the beginning of finding, you know, where I was eventually going to work at the Dartmouth company is from talking to 50 different companies. And it ended up being my first interview. His dad owned the, the company, the Dartmouth company. Mm-hmm. So from my first interview to my 50th, you know, it ended up being the first person I talked to was able to get me a job at his dad's firm. It was just, you know, coincidentally, and it was just persistence. But, you know, along the way, I was able to network. I was able to meet more people. And you, you'd be surprised at how many people actually want to help others. So especially, I, I just think, in the real estate world. So, you know, it, it really just takes you, you know, if you have the confidence to pick up the phone, call somebody that you don't know, but you're able to generate some type of, uh, you know, common interest, then that conversation can last for years. And there's a bunch of business and money to be made from just picking up the phone. <clears throat> oh, without a doubt. Wait, how come you didn't want to get into residential since you said <laughs> that your, your dad does it? And you laugh. Yeah, I, I, I do. Uh, I, I tell, I tell friends, like a couple of my buddies that like contemplate it. I'm like, <laughs> I'm like, don't do it. <laughs> it's, I mean, it's, it's a two edged sword. I mean, I just remember this, like when I was getting into it, my yeah. dad tells me, don't get into residential. You're going to be negotiating with somebody's heart. Meaning, you know, you might show them a space and they might not like the color on the wall, or they might look at a kitchen and saying that it's old. You know, it's just all personal taste. So you can't change that. It's not something you can negotiate. No. Whereas in commercial, it's business. It's, you know, financial analysis. It's Excel. It's, it's literally calculations that come to a certain number and then you negotiate the number, right? So it can actually be negotiated with the actual business mindset rather than somebody's personal taste on a Sunday afternoon when you guys are touring space, you know? So that's what he just warned me of getting into it. And I knew from that, I was like, I remember him coming back and telling me stories of like, yeah, I just met with this, you know, sweet couple. They just got married and uh, they didn't like the green color on the house. And my response to it was like, you can change that. Like, how about the price? How about how many bedrooms do you like? How many bathrooms do you want? Like, legitimate statistics that go into deciding whether a home is right for you or not. So from that instance, I knew commercial probably be the, the better play. The better play. And how long have you been doing it now? Uh, this is now going on eight years. Um, 
started off at a family boutique called the Dartmouth Company, which they were awesome. I had a, about three or four mentors in there doing every different product type. Mm-hmm. That's the other thing with commercial real estate. It's a spider web of assets, you know, retail, office, industrial, office and lab. Um, and then there's also the debt side of it. So, you know, through my 50 interviews, I knew that I kind of want to get into retail. But the Dartmouth company, they're basically saying you're going to be a broker and you're going to do my first deal was an industrial deal. My second deal was an office leasing. And then the third and from there on was all retail. But, you know, I was able to get, you know, a good grasp on every type of asset class. So when you did your first deal, because obviously when you do your first deal, it probably means the world to you because like you feel like you're starting to be successful. You're making your good first chunk of change and stuff like that. Like run me through like how because i don't know how the commercial side works in comparison to like how the residential side works how how was like what was your mindset like what what did you have to do like how how was the like negotiating and stuff like that and how did you learn all those things like were you kind of just like being thrown into it with someone mentoring you along the way like how did that first deal go through yeah so the first deal was an industrial deal that we were representing the tenant so you know, luckily the company I was working at, you know, we had a lot of strong brokers who have a long client list. One of my mentors was uh, Scott Black, who represents Whole Foods throughout New England. And Whole Foods needed a an industrial warehouse, you know, uh, basically a delivery uh, center that one of their cold hard products concepts needed space for it's it's a weird concept but basically it's all their paper goods that mm-hmm. they needed to, to sell and they needed a warehouse for it so they needed twenty five thousand square feet somewhere within you know the 95 belt of uh, boston close proximity to a highway and i basically was told go find them a space twenty five thousand square feet go find it so i basically had to drive the market had to learn about clear height, how to learn about loading docks, how to learn about spacing between columns, you know, a lot of the industrial kind of one-on-one questions and uh, basically found a site in Bellingham for them. They toured, they came from Florida and they toured the market. We showed them about 15 different sites, ended up on this one in Bellingham. They walked it, they loved it. We sent an LOI later that day at asking and the landlord agreed to it. And then we went to lease. The lease took probably a week to two weeks to negotiate. And we had a signed deal in a month. So just to give you a little background, usually any type of deal is six months to negotiate and then maybe a year until they open. This deal took a month to sign and then they're open two months later. So I think I still have the record at the Dartmouth company for the fastest deal, but luckily enough, it was my first deal. So I was uh, happy to be put on that one, but it was just a unique circumstance where there was tenant demands and, you know, in, in a strong market. Did you, where did you start? You started at, you got your start at CBRE? Uh, no, the Dartmouth company to start off. And then after about two years there, my mentor brought me over to CBRE where I spent about four years or three years uh, doing urban retail leasing, uh, mostly Boston, Newberry Street, Seaport, and Harvard Square with a focus on, you know, all high-end retail. So, you know, we did the rollouts for Sweetgreen in Boston. We did all Lululemon's work. Um, 
we did a lot of restaurant leasing in Seaport, one of the deals being Davios. Um, and so a lot of tenant rep stuff, but then Newberry Street was our bread and butter. You know, we worked with a group called Asana Partners and leased 39 properties for them. Uh, we worked on Harvard Square, um, also Asana Partners, where they're retenanting uh, Brattle Court, where they have Felipe's, Lululemon, Allbirds, Marine Lair, Patagonia. Um, and I was both landlord and, and tenant rep. So I did about urban retail leasing for about six years. COVID hit and uh, made the switch to investment sales. You know, leasing was kind of quiet in 2020. So I made the move where investment sales was actually picking up and uh, was able to add another tool to the tool belt. Yeah, no, that's where, and what are you doing? You're on a team now or like what, how are you, how are you working? Is it just you? You got a team under you. You working for someone? I work with um, my partner Jim Corey, who's been doing this for about thirty-eight years. He himself personally has sold five billion dollars in grocery-anchored retail. Um, he's he's been around the map, you know, working at HFF, JLL, CBRE, um, and he actually came over to Marcus and Millichap starting in 2019, 2020, just starting the team just grocery anchored retail in Boston or New England. And uh, him and I met. So now it's just him and I on the team. We're trying to grow it out. Um, and, you know, with Boston and just New England, it's a lot of territory to cover. So need more than just two people doing deals. How much of, uh, cause I think it, I think me personally, like being, um, being in the business and stuff like that and just being in business in general, um, especially with like the investing side of things and stuff like that. I think there's so much similarities between, um, playing sports and being on like a successful team. And then like that so transition true. and then that transitioning to business. Um, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, no, I, I strongly believe in that. The one thing I think that helped me just from, you know, as you know, we woke up for prep for workouts at 5 a.m., work out for an hour. You have breakfast, then you go to class all day, and then you have practice later in the afternoon. And then you have to go do your homework or write a paper, prepare for a test later that night, do it all over again the next day. So, you know, 24 hours goes by fast. And if you don't know how to time manage it, you know, those days go by fast. And, I think having that, you know, structure, that schedule back in college helped me in the real estate world. Cause as you know, it's commission-based business, you know, it's a, it's a eat what you kill mentality where if you're not calling, if you're not networking, if you're not meeting with buyers or sellers, you're not getting that much closer to a commission check. So if you know how to plan out your day, and you can go and network on top of cold calling and, and still do your emails later that day, um, then you're going to be able to build yourself a successful business. And where did you learn this? Because um, for me personally, like a lot of the stuff like uh, that you were just saying, aside from the sports avenue of like how to structure your day, um, how to do cold business, how to, you know, effectively network and all those things for me it was a lot of like reading books and then just literally asking people that i thought were successful so like pretend i don't know who you are even though i know you are successful like finding out from someone that you're in the real estate space and like you're doing all these deals and stuff like that i mean just being like hey alex like you got like five ten minutes like 
whether, you know, you, you just like, can I get some of your attention or like, you want to get coffee and just picking your brain, asking you like how you did what you did. And then kind of like piecing, um, a lot of the puzzle together. And I know like before we got on, we were talking about how it's kind of crazy, like how low the bar is real estate. And then once you're in there, there's so much expectation that there's a lot of like risk and like hot, a lot of high reward in, in that. So like, where did you learn how to like really like dominate in like the industry that you're in right now? Like, was it, again, was it the sports? Did you have like mentors? Like, how did you like really start to piece it together and know it was for you versus just having like a normal standard nine to five? Yeah, it was a little bit of trial and error. I mean, I at the beginning of getting into the real estate world of how to, you know, schedule my day and, you know, block off time to make calls or block off time just to do emails. But uh, I, I was kind of, I grew up a little organized, you know, a little bit of OCD maybe where I hated being late for things. I hated not having, you know, homework done or something like that. As geeky as it sounds, but like, uh, it was more of a personal thing. But when I got into the real estate world, you know, you got to have your stuff together when a landlord calls you for a leasing report and you don't have a leasing report to give them you know, you didn't do your job, right? You didn't get, you didn't talk to the tenants. You didn't do any outreach. You didn't set up any tours. So I learned the hard way where, you know, landlords, they have expectations and you need to deliver on your promise to them. So I got my hand slapped a bunch of times starting off in this industry where they're, you know, just didn't have any activity on a site or, you know, didn't have my underwriting in order. And, you know, you miss one little detail and it could be the, the end of that relationship and that landlord won't do any business with you. So I was lucky enough to have a mentor that really, you know, ingrained in me at the beginning that, you know, if you don't know somebody, if you don't know something, that's fine. Just say you don't know, but you'll get back to them. If you say you're going to send somebody an email, make sure you send it to them. So like I got into a habit. And, you know, now become just second nature where, you know, you follow up on your word, make sure you're making the calls because you have properties to sell or, or spaces to lease. So it was a little bit of a personal, just, you know, OCD. And at the same time, learning from experiences that, you know, this is, this can be a pretty grueling industry. Stick to your word and follow up. You know, there's not much anybody else can say about that. Yeah, exactly. Did you um did you go to business school at all? No, luckily for real estate classes, it's just seventy two hours in a classroom over the weekend. You take a couple tests and you get your license. So, I uh, even though Hobart was good to me and I I thought I did well there, I am not a school person. Uh, I, I I don't really at all. No, not doing that route. Why you just like I, you just was like no that I'm not I'm done with this the two majors I'm done you? with school yeah and you know four years of college and I was like here's the other thing too my both my went to uh, business school for my brother and my sister went to uh, PA school afterwards so seeing them go do schooling just made me realize that was not for me so might as well get a a real estate license start earning some uh, some money the quick way but it's uh yeah school school wasn't for me put it that way you what are your thoughts on um 
like business school, like, do you think like, obviously this would be like a, an ignorant perspective, not ever having going, but do you think it's necessary to go to business school to like succeed in business in like general? The only reason I ask is because, um, and you'll probably laugh is I heard forever ago, 50 cent was said that if the business professors were successful entrepreneurs or successful business people, they wouldn't be teaching. They'd be running the businesses cause they'd be making more money doing it that way. Um, obviously there's the element of like, you know, some people just like to teach. That's why they got into it. They sold a company, stuff like that. Obviously there's that, but just like, I'm always curious because like I told you, the majority of stuff I learned was just from picking people's brains, watching, like learning on YouTube, like reading books nonstop and then just trying to like connect the dots like a detective would or something like that. And I've always felt that that's given me a greater advantage than had I spent the money to go to business school, which again, it's kind of an ignorant opinion or thought, but like, what do you think about that? No, it's a good point. I mean, I have some buddies that just graduated from business school because, you know, the way I look at it personally is it's just another way to network right? In college, you make a bunch of good friends and you hope that your businesses can overlap in the future. Business school is primarily for you to learn and how to network with other individuals going that same route. Luckily, you got an MBA and some, you know, a degree to go next to it. But, you know, those degrees and those licenses are really only important depending on which field. So I think going to business school, the primary reason you should go to business school is if you need a network. And if you need to meet a bunch of people um, to help your business take off, because I see people go to business school after they're in the, in the, um, in the real world and in, in the you know, real estate market for three or four years. And, you know, maybe they want to learn more on the finance side. Maybe they want to go on the debt side or wealth management side. You know, there's licenses that they need to go and attain to, in order to become licensed advisors. Um, but for me, I was lucky enough to already have a pretty decent network, right? And I didn't need to have the, you know, MBA next to my name just to to get in the same room as them. You know, I was just able to pick up the phone and use some uh, mutual connections. But uh, I think MBA is important for specific fields in regards to real estate. It's not a requirement. It's always mm-hmm. good to have, especially if you're on the maybe in the investment sales side or the debt side, but on the leasing and whether it's leasing retail to office, you don't need an MBA for that. I mean, I know guys who didn't even go to college and just started doing real estate on the side with their friends and made a bunch of money off of that. So um, it's not a requirement. I think it's also depending on the person, right? I wasn't a, I wasn't a book guy. You know, I was more street smarts. So didn't need an MBA to, or put myself in school for another two to three years to, to do the exact same thing that I'm doing today. Literally, <laughs> literally. Uh, Save some we money were... doing that way too. And student loans. Yeah, exactly. You were saying before we hopped on here, we were just like shooting the shit talking. Um, you were saying that like it, when you're in real estate, you're essentially a financial wealth advisor it, yeah. for more than, you know, more, more importantly, like on the consumer side of it, you're a financial wealth advisor. Obviously the day-to-day job, you're, you know, lead generating all day, trying to find new clients and stuff like that. How, what, like, what is your opinion on it as a whole? Cause I know like we, we said it briefly before that like 87% of the people that get in the industry in their first five years, like they either exit, they fail. Uh, Well, I don't want to say fail. Let's just say exit. They exit. Cause that's like what, when they, when you see those articles, like they say fail, which I mean, you fail every day, but they exit. Um, 
do you do you think it's crazy that like there's no like any form of like because like to be a CPA you got to go to like college and yeah. get do a degree in accounting and stuff like that and then like like we were saying like being here in New York I just had to pass a 72 hour exam take a state test and then okay cool now I can go sell multi million dollar apartments exactly. to like the top one percent who like you were saying are like private equity guys hedge fund guys maybe some are celebs others are athletes and stuff like that like wh- like how crazy is that to you like what do you it think is. about that as a whole because it's like almost I'm, like irresponsible to a degree it can be absolutely I mean it, it is kind of funny to put it that way it's like you know we just some people look at it as you got your you know license online. And now you're able to do all of this real estate underwriting and, you know, some of it you kind of have to learn on the side. Right. But the way I look at it is, you know, whether it's real estate, stock market trading or bonds or whatever, it's somebody's wealth. Right. And you're trying to um, have fiduciary responsibilities to that owner and where they allocate the funds. So for us in the investment sales side here at Marcus Millichap, you know, we look at everybody's portfolio from their actual personal finances to what they own on their portfolio. And, you know, we have to make sure that they're cash flowing their asset, meaning they have some you know net profits and that the bank isn't going to take it away if they're not being able to pay their, their loans. But, you know, the way I look at it is there's capital that these certain owners have, whether it be national REITs or, Know, public and traded firms, or even just the Joe Schmo who's down the corner, but has a 150 unit um, multifamily portfolio, where they own you know two or three stop and shops in Rhode Island. You know, you never know where their money's coming from, but it's up to us to make sure that their properties are making money. And if they ever sell it, it actually is in our best interest for them to do what we call a 1031 exchange, which is basically taking the proceeds from a sale and exchanging them into a better performing asset or a higher cash flowing asset and postponing paying uh, capital gains tax. So just within just one or two transactions, you're helping them avoid paying taxes for the time being, you know, kicking the can down the road, but you're also helping them allocate funds into something that's going to make them more money. So in a way, just from doing real estate, you are in control of somebody's personal finances. And that's where it's kind of just, you know, shocking sometimes that an online real estate course can get you the ability to negotiate that. Yeah, exactly. What do you do? I'm, I always find it crazy, like with 1031 exchanges and stuff like that, like how, I mean, obviously you have to have money, you have to have money to invest. And most people like aren't aware of how lucrative, I don't even know if lucrative is the right word, but like how, what, what a great investment real estate is. And I mean, we probably sound like two Ponzi scheme guys right now because <laughs> yeah. we work in it and we're like, oh yeah, like definitely do it. I mean, cause obviously we work in the industry and we make money off that yeah. people, people buying property, people investing in property, whatever they want to do with it. But they're like, majority of people that are wealthy like wealthy wealthy or very rich like they do own a portfolio of residential or commercial real estate and then they kind of use those 
tax I don't tax loopholes or how the tax code's written um and they like lean into that to create their wealth and they do it in a very legal way which yep. to the average person seems very illegal and kind of like shady and scummy to do do you think that that perception comes from obviously it's obviously miseducation or not being informed right. and not not being up to speed on it that's where like the ignorance of it comes from but do you think it should be taught in schools because I have conversations with Buddy all the time because, like, I, I, me personally, I'm one of the biggest. I think college is the biggest scam in the world, person, only from the economics of it, with yeah. how expensive it is. Like you said, like, oh, I wanted a well-rounded degree. It's like, okay, yeah, that that that's good, but that kind of leaves you to like solely being an employee like there's not enough in my opinion it, like entrepreneurial classes or even like investing classes where people could at least know okay hey it may take me 10 15 20 years to save up this nest egg but when i when i do save up this nest egg in that process of time i could be learning educating myself so that when it comes time to hit the market i already have a good 10 15 who knows 20 year plan yeah. of how i'm going to create wealth and how i'm going to eventually go buy that business or start this business or even just say, fuck it and retire. Like, what do you, what do you think? Right. About, what do you think about no, that? It's a good point. I mean, look, if you look at a young guy or girl who is trying to use some money that they got from their you know, day job or summer internship, some people just make it seem like, all right, so let's go put your money in a stock market, right? Pick mm -hmm. a, an ETF and just watch it build over the course of the year or, you know, some people, and I hear this all the time, you know, max out your Roth IRA, you know, $6,000 a year and, you know, compound it growth. And you're just going to be able to have a couple thousand dollars later on in your life. It's the same thing with real estate. You're just putting your proceeds into a different vehicle, investment vehicle. Now, the good thing to your point about taxes is some real estate, you get to depreciate if you actually own the building and the dirt. So you get to depreciate that and you know, over 39 and a half years, um, you're, you're actually looking at a strong profit at the end of, you know, let's say 40, 50 years down the road. So there's a benefit to owning real estate for that principle. Um, there's a good you know, way to leverage what's going on in the market right now with interest rates and so forth. If you have a good real estate uh, asset that is cash flowing and your debt's low on it, and you have you know, 100% occupied center you know you're going to be able to cash flow a couple million dollars a year so just like a stock real estate is a different investment vehicle it's just it's honestly preference so it is kind of back and forth but it's all personal preference mm -hmm. do, do you now do you think there should be more classes on it in school and stuff I like do. that I mean, I think to your point there should be a lot more classes than what's being taught at liberal arts schools but you know the way I look at it is if you know what you want to do in the world, you should be able to take classes and a school should be able to offer all those classes to get to that, whether it be accounting, whether it be, um, you know, either financial underwriting for real estate, you know, that could be a, uh, a class in itself. Um, I also think that there is a class or a course that should just be dedicated to understanding what the actual loopholes and what taxes are. Right. A lot of people who are wealthy, the reason they're wealthy is because they shelter themselves from paying taxes. That's just, you know, they either were learning it on their own. Uh, they learned it from trial and experience. Um, 
I just think that those are some main courses that colleges and even if you want to start with accounting and learning how uh, you know profit and loss statement looks uh, in high school. That's 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 an easy class to take rather than you know I hate to shit on it, but you know philosophy is great. You can learn a lot of education tactics through it, but you know don't make a whole major out of it. You know have a class on that and then focus a little bit more on the business uh, aspect. That's what we're going to be using no matter what, you know, whether you're a teacher, you're in real estate, you're a CPA, you know, for somebody to know how the taxes work, for somebody to know what a profit and loss statement looks like and how to budget, you know, that's actual real world um, knowledge that will help. No, exactly. And are the 1031 exchanges, because I don't know, so this is a stupid question. Yeah. Are the 1031 exchanges, are those... Uh, the same on the commercial side as they are on the residential side where you have to yes. not. Okay. So you do. Okay. So it's the same where you have to roll over the initial investment, not just the capital gains. And then um, you can't always access your capital because you have to roll it over. Correct. Okay. Yeah. I mean, if you, if you, if you touch any of that, those proceeds, right. So whether it be the initial investment or the, pro, the profit that you get on top of that, mm-hmm. you're going to be paying taxes on it. Yeah. So, you got to basically take the whole thing or some of it. And if you take some of it, you're paying taxes on the rest. So, you know, for example, we, we helped a client sell a stop and shop in Belchertown for $14.5 million. Their basis in that deal was, you know, $10 million. So they had four and a half million dollars of profit there. They Mm -hmm. took the whole thing and they put a, they put a down deposit using that 14 and a half million dollars to buy, a huge portfolio of industrial buildings in California, which totaled around like $60 million. Jeez. So they went from a standalone stop and shop to owning about 10 to 12 industrial buildings in California and their cash flow, you know, grew exponentially. So that's just one asset. That's just one benefit of a 1031 exchange where, you know, you're taking on new debt and that new acquisition, but you just tenfolded your cash flow. Right? Yeah. It's ridiculous. Yeah, ridiculous no. in a good way. <laughs> no, yeah, no, I exactly, yeah, and I um, I know because I know I I have a couple people that I know a couple like previous clients like back in Buffalo and stuff like that, but um, where they pretty much they when they were younger because they were put onto this at such a young age where as soon as they graduated college, like probably like their second or third year out of school, like they saved their money, they worked like all that stuff. They bought, they, they bought a place, fixed it up. Didn't, didn't necessarily flip it, but lived in it for a couple of years or they'll buy like a multifamily, they'll cash flow it. Um, they'll get the appreciation for it and then they sell it and they 1031 exchange it. But that initial t- time period, you know, they end up using those funds to, you know, build their house or like they do stuff like that, or even they 1031 exchange it um, into another property and then wait for that property to make them even more cash flow. And then they use parts of that initial investment to go then buy, I don't know, like Airbnb and, and all that stuff. And I'm always like, it kind of always like, I don't know if it does with you, but sometimes it always like annoys me because I feel like obviously you it's like that saying where like you can't you can lead someone to a well but you can't make them drink. Yep. It's my frustration with it is it's like okay well you most people don't even know the well's there. So true. Yeah, you got you can. So that's the thing. So when you're selling something, you kind of have to show them here's what you can put your proceeds into. 
but mm-hmm. it really depends on what they want to put their like their, their proceeds into just because you know some of these they have developments that they want to focus on and mm-hmm. you can't really 1031 exchange into a development so unfortunately you have to pay taxes on it and then remaining you can put into development because the yeah. whole thing with the 1031 exchange is you have to exchange into a like kind asset meaning you know if you're going into you know it could be retail into multifamily that's fine but it has to be or better mm. in pricing and it has to you know kind of you know it, it can't just be in trying to stash money on the side you know it has to be an existing building it has to be an existing asset that's cash flowing so there's like a bunch of guidelines that go into it, but it is difficult sometimes when you have somebody that's like, all right, well, I don't want to pay taxes on this, but I also don't have a, a property to invest my money into. Well, sometimes they just won't sell because there's nothing for them to buy. Exactly. Yeah. Cause you have to, I'm pretty sure with the standard 1031 exchange, you have to reinvest hundred percent of the proceeds from the sale Correct. to, yep. to, re, to relinquish the property. And then defer Correct. all that capital gains. It's the same. Yep, it is. Okay. Okay. Cool. Yeah. Do you uh have you invested in any real estate? Um, I've started to. Um, my dad and I are looking at some residential buildings and multifamily, and mm-hmm. then um, the luxury with Marcus and Millichap is, and this isn't for every firm, but you know our firm, you know we're the number one investment sales firm in the country, and it gives us the. Um, the ability to reinvest our commission into products and to assets that we sell for our clients. So actually the deal that we sold in the stop and shop in Belchertown that we sold, that was an actual Marcus and Millichap broker out of California who owned it with his buddy. And That's the way they got into it was he helped his buddy buy the deal. And instead of getting a commission on it, he just rolled it into as equity into the, into the asset. So when we sold it for him, not only was he taking a commission, but he was also getting the benefit of uh, reinvesting his proceeds into an industrial asset class. So, yeah, it, it's it's something that I'm trying to do more of. Um, you know, with commission though, too, as you know, it's your commission comes in and you pay all your debts off, your credit card bills, and so forth. So it's always a little bit more tough to, to have a salary, right? Salary enables you to have payments every other two weeks. Commission, you never know when it's going to hit the bank. And when it does, it's pretty much going out the door again. But luckily, you know, we've been super successful the past three or four years and starting to use some of that excess cash flow to, to reinvest into real estate. And it's not just retail. I mean, I am biased on retail, but um, multifamily is always going to be booming in Boston. That's something that I'm getting more and more into. And then, you know, if there's the right retail property that I want to put money into, at least I know how to underwrite it. So I know if, uh, <laughs> exactly. if it makes sense or not. Yeah, no, that's so true. Is uh, What's like the best, if I was looking to buy a multifamily in uh, in Boston right now, where would you point me? Would you point me to Eastie or like whereabouts? Because I know Eastie is the past couple of years, Eastie's taken off. It is. Maverick Square is, is booming right now. Um, it's tough because, again, it all depends on where you kind of want your returns, right? If you go to 
Cambridge or Somerville, everybody's looking at that market. So the returns are, are super minimal. And, you know, it, it is tough to find property there. Eastie is a great market. Um, you know, I bought a condo in, uh, in Charlestown. You know, I was able to get in at a pretty, pretty good rate. And it was kind of in a quiet side of the market. But, you know, anything within 128 or the 95 belt in Boston is a win. Just because people are, you know, the older populations are moving out of the city into the suburbs. And I think it's creating a little bit more opportunities for some of the younger generation to use some of their their net worth or their capital that they have with even family and friends to start buying two to three multifamily portfolios all throughout Southie, Eastie. Um, you know, I think Austin Brighton will always be a great market to put your money into. But then you're getting places like in Jamaica Plain that's doing a lot of developments for multifamily. And, you know, even where I grew up in Arlington, you know, there's a bunch of developments over there in East Arlington next to Cambridge. So, you know, Boston luckily is a um, pretty resourceful city. There's always going to be opportunities out there. There's always people that, you know, want to do business. And I just think, you know, we have a lot of buildings that either need to be bought and redeveloped or they're still little plots of land here and there that you can develop ground up. And that's where I think you're going to make most of your money. Yeah. Are you, what's, uh, what are the next five years looking like for you? Is there, you want to get into a development? Like what is like your, if you can say like, what is your five year play? It's funny enough. I was just talking with my, uh, my partner, Jim about this. Um, now, he's been doing this for 38 years. I don't see him doing this more than five or six years. So honestly, goal is to uh, take the reins from, you know, and, and ride the coattails of what he's created, kind of solidify my name in Boston Real Estate Investment Sales. And you know, I still do a lot of retail and restaurant leasing in the city. So, mm-hmm. you know, I always do a lot of tenant rep stuff. Um but I think, honestly, in a five-year horizon, being able to take over Jim's kind of portfolio and his control of New England market for grocery-anchored retail, still doing brokerage in about five years. But I think if you go past that, we'll love to open up my own shop. So you and I should still talk, and maybe we combine the Sirhan side of things with the Mark <laughs> the Mill shop. Yeah, um, it, it's just it's funny because we were talking about um, like for the brief amount of time that I've been here, um, like building a personal brand is like the like the big thing, right? Yeah. Um, and it's just funny how the the amount of people that like it's it's funny how like it, it's almost like I'm trying to think of how to say this properly because I heard it the other day. Um, I was listening to. Who is it? Erica Nardine, the CEO of Barstool. Yeah. Um, she was talking about how nowadays someone was asking her a question. And like I told you earlier, like I'm always listening to interviews and podcasts because I think it's just like it's it's free game 24-7. Um, and the way that I look at those is like I pretend like whether I'm watching it on my computer, I'm listening, whatever. I pretend like mentally I'm in the crowd. And, and I pretend like, you know, I'm there to try to like find something that I could use of value. She was talking about how, um, like nowadays there's really not many brands out there that are kind of like a bar stool because most brands nowadays are linked and tied to a personal brand. Whereas someone like Dave Portnoy, she was saying has always wanted to create something bigger than himself. And obviously bar stool is, you could argue bigger than him now. Um, and then I heard Dana White 
Dana White saying the exact same thing. Like Dana White was, I mean, he sold the UFC for geez, I think like four billion or something crazy like that. Um, but he still runs like the day to day, like kind of like operations from like the right. presidential side that Portnoy is. Um, and I kind of see that's like from the little that I do know from the little time I've been here, it looks like that is essentially like what Ryan has created and is going to continue to create because just in the short amount of time that I've been in, when people ask like, Hey, like, what do you do for work and stuff like that? I'm always hesitant because I know what their reaction is going to be. And I'm always just like, Oh, like real estate, I'm a broker. And they're like, Oh, that's cool. It's cool. Like, okay. Yeah. Like whatever. But then, as soon as they're like, oh, like, what, what, where, like, what company do you work for? And I'm like, Sirhan. They immediately start bugging out because they're fans of Ryan, and it's yeah, it's immediately like I was telling you how my team lead Andy, he, you know, said not only are you an extension of me, but you're also representing Ryan at the same time because you're working for his company. Um, and it's funny how like the level of like trust and what they think of you just shoots through the roof because they're just associating you with like this brand that he built. Yeah. Um, you know, honestly, when I look at just the brand that I'm trying to make, you know, I honestly haven't done probably a, a good enough job on social media to, to get the deals out there, but you know, I'm trying to create a brand that is everything retail, right? Yeah. So from the leasing side of it for landlord and tenant rep, from the investment sales side to help somebody sell their building to refinance it or to buy, you mm-hmm. know, that's, that's the full length of stuff I'm trying to show as, you know, Alex Quinn brokerage. But at the same time, you have Marcus and Millichap, which is a giant, right. And you try to use the coattails of that marketing platform and the brokers, you know, we have 1700 brokers across the country. There are some guys out there that do a great job of just their own group. But sometimes people forget that they are part of Marcus and Millichap because their name pops up. So, you know, I, I think when, and you see this all the time, when you're going out and meeting people, always lead with your first name, right? Because that is the brand that you are trying to grow. And yeah. if somebody needs a little bit more, not confidence in you or, or at least trust in you, it's, yeah, well, look, you know, this is my brand. You know, this is, Alex's real estate course. This is John's real estate course. You know, all right, great. But the people behind us that help us support us on a day to day is Sirhan, or it's Marcus Millichap. Mm-hmm. You know, that's almost secondary, but it is a good umbrella to be a part of. Yeah, and are you trying? You said you're trying to have your own firm one day. Like, are you trying to be like CEO? Like, are you just trying to like have some find a CEO? Like, what is your like? It's Alex Quinn Real Estate, right? Like, what what position are you? What hat are you wearing? Yeah, honestly, it's funny. You have a couple of beers with some of your buddies and this always comes up because, you know, I've created a good group of buddies that, you know, one's a lawyer, one's working on the fundraising side of things. Um, I have a wealth manager buddy. So like you're starting to put all these pieces together and I can see a company being formed, maybe not using my name, but uh, I see it as I could be the broker of record. Right. So, as mm-hmm. you know, the difference between a salesperson and a broker is the broker is able to run the company and have their license hang on the door for the company. But the uh, the benefit is, you know, I'm going to be able to source all the real estate deals, you know, still have the brokerage mindset. But if it's uh, finding properties for your own portfolio, that's one aspect of it. And then at the same time, if the company in itself can be a brokerage tool for other clients, 
you mm-hmm. know, then you have two different pipelines of income. You have your own real estate portfolio and then you can collect the commissions on helping others. So, I mean, that's the way I see it going forward. Um, you know, it is always better to, to have good people around you. Um, mm-hmm. you know, you never want to be the smartest person in the room. And I know for sure that I'm definitely not the smartest person in the room. So if I can hire the right people and create a good brand and create a good portfolio, you know, that's where I, I hope to take the, the career and what I take with me on the real estate knowledge side. Yeah. Um, kind of more of uh, picking your brain on this versus actually yeah. like saying it is I, um, since being in New York, um, there's just so many different people that you meet and so many different yeah. like perspectives on life and, and stuff like that. And I say this in the best way possible, but like I say it jokingly, but I, you also probably can allude to what I'm saying. Cause there, I, there's a, there's people in Boston that are like this too, but yeah. I joke, like I've joked with, uh, like I was talking to Mark Marino the other day, oh, and yeah. <laughs> big Mark. And he was asking me like how I like New York and stuff. Cause he was just like, dude, I could never. And I'm just like, yeah. I'm like, it's, I'm like, it's crazy how when I was in Buffalo, Boston seemed so massive to me. And then after being in New York for a little bit, going back to Boston, Boston feels like a little village compared to new york and i was saying um and i got this more like what i'm about to say like the the vibe of these type of people i would get like when we were at the grand so that's like your demographic uh just to put that context out there is like people think they're more important and like better than what they actually are and so you were saying you never want to be the smartest person in the room um after saying that how like in your opinion do you think like people just block their own growth because like they're they're so tied to like wanting to be number one and wanting to be the best that they fail to realize that like the only way you could do that is like by struggling in the aspect of not knowing what you're talking about or learning something per se versus always being like the smartest there is i mean i had a colleague who broke off from the company we're at and started his own real estate firm. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he had a couple of good tenants with him, but he thought he was, you know, better than anybody else in the company. So he wanted to create his own, you know, the commission splits are with himself. And I honestly haven't seen him do a deal in probably two or three years, right? He, he just mm-hmm. got it himself in his own way. And I knew when I was switching firms from Dartmouth Company to CBRE, I knew I needed a corporate giant to help me get in the room with some of these tenants I was reaching out to, mm-hmm. right? You know, I, I was trying to reach out to the best of the best restaurants. You know, I was trying to get connected with uh, Patagonia's of the world, Lululemon's, you know, the top retail brands. And I couldn't do that with Alex Quinn. I could do it with CBRE with my signature there. Mm-hmm. You know, that, that got me into the room. So I think, you know, I, I just learned that if you're on a good team, and you have good mentors to show you like the path. And then you have a good company behind you to help support your legitimacy. Mm-hmm. That's how you're going to do well in the business. And even if I started creating my own real estate company, I know that I'm going to need other partners around me to either introduce me to people I don't know, to underwrite a deal better than I could, or introduce me to a capital partner that I've never met before. Right. I know that yeah. just me by myself, even though the networking that I've built is, is huge, it's still not going to win me business at the end of the day. Right. There's just, you know, for instance, we lost a, a pitch the other day because the guy we were competing against who doesn't even come compare close to the amount of deals that we've done. 
he just knew the person on a personal basis. And so he won that deal, you know, so the network, the ability to kind of capitalize yourself, but at the same time, use your partners around you, you know, you're trying to make yourself as complete as possible for the client. It's not always just about your, your own brand that you're trying to build. No, exactly. Yeah. I'm always curious to that. Cause like, I know, um, because I was talking with a buddy that works here and he was just basically like, he was saying to me, which he'll laugh at cause you probably get all the time. He was joking. He was just like, you're, you have to have the easiest job in the world. He's just like, you do like little to nothing and make the most amount of money. And obviously that's like the, yeah, that's, that's like the stereo. That's like the stereotype. Yeah, no, I know. Well, I mean, and it's like the stereotype for, well, cause most people like watch HDTV. They see like, they've seen million dollar listing or they just watch like real estate shows and they're just like, Oh, I could do that. That's simple. That's easy. Um, and stuff like that. And I'm always curious to like, just like the pre and you can get it in every which way you're talking about, but I've always yeah. like wondered like how, how often do people like block their own potential and their own growth just because like they have that air. I don't want to say arrogance, but they have that like ignorance to like thinking they know what like is actually going on behind the scenes and what like the day to day looks like versus um, just being like taking the approach of like, I don't know shit and I'm just going to continue yeah. to keep, keep moving the needle. I mean, the thing I'd say to that is because it's commission-based and we only get paid when the deal closes. I mean, some people don't understand. Like, yeah, it can be very easy when the deal closes. But, mm. you know, that deal could have taken you two years to put together. I mean, yeah. I, I'm, cur- I'm currently working on a deal that is hopefully going to get me a large paycheck, hopefully. But I've been working on it for three years. Yeah. So I haven't seen any money for three years, even though I've been working on the same deal. So yeah. the stereotype, I, I think it's kind of, you know, it's, it's annoying to hear it because I, I get it. I understand that, you know, somebody could show a house, somebody could show a retail center, that buyer falls in love with it, signs a purchase and sale agreement, and you collect your, your money in 30 days after closing. It mm-hmm. can be that easy. But in reality, deals die at least execution. Deals die when you're about to negotiate that final point in the purchase to sale agreement and they find a better property to, to purchase. Like there's mm-hmm. a lot of people that don't understand that it, it, it does take a very long time to find a buyer, even find a listing, a find a listing, then find a buyer, negotiate that deal, have your debt lined up to actually acquire it. And the buyer actually moves forward with it. I mean, our, it is annoying to hear that some people think our, our business is easy. It's not, it's, it's continuous minutes and hours on the phone. It's convincing people to sometimes do what they might not think they want to do, or, you know, their lawyers talking to them in their year. They're like, don't do this deal. Uh, here's do a this little deal. tagline. Lawyers are, lawyers are the, the crux of every real estate deal. They, they kill deals. I'll tell you that. <laughs> you said, don't do this deal. That's funny yeah. as well. So, but no, I, I just think, you know, there's a lot of time and effort that goes into our job and again, we're commissioned. So if the deal dies, we don't get paid. No, straight up. Um, I, I don't think I asked you this yet, but I, we, we've bu- bounced back and forth between it, but like, do you, do you think that you would be, um, I don't know, like not as happy, like in what you do if, cause real estate to me is like back to like that grind of like playing yeah. a college sport. Um, which the same buddy, the same buddy that was like, that was, that always talks shit about real estate was trying to tell me we were out the other night and he was trying to tell me that like, um, college, like he, 
because the school he went to, it wasn't like high level, high level athletics. Like I know like Hobart was D three for hockey, but you guys were always like top 10 in the country. So like there's a level of commitment to that regardless of the level. Um, right. So because to be top in your environment, regardless of the levels that the environment entail, it still takes like that dedication and work. And he was trying to tell me like, it's not like, it's not a commitment. Um, it's not that big a commitment and like athletes make it seem crazier than what it is. And it's like, kind of like when we were in college, like how, you know, the kids that didn't play sports were just like, Oh, you guys act like you're so busy because you, you play a sport and stuff like that. And it's like, yeah, we have film, we have lift, we have like all these positional, we have all this. And then on top of it, we're cramming in the same schedule that you currently have and stuff like that. So do you, do you think you do well in real estate because you're a former athlete and like you love that grind? And like, do you think that if you didn't have that grind and like a different job that you wouldn't be as fulfilled or like, cause yeah, it's, it's I battle with it all the time. Up. Yeah. It, no, I, I do too. Honestly, I mean, I question my industry when deals die. <laughs> like it's like, oh, there goes a pretty good commission check out the door. That sucks. But no, I mean, I look at it, it's such a toss up when you look at it as there is a great reward when deals close. Right. That's mm-hmm. that's where people look at us like, oh, your business is so lucrative. Yeah, it, it can be very rewarding if it actually goes through. And then other times I wish I had a salary job, but at the same time, if I had that salary job, I knew that no matter what work put in and how much time I spent doing that work, I know at the end of the week, at the end of the month, I'm getting paid X and I can't get anything more than that. Maybe your holiday bonus, but you know, that's where I like put myself back in reality is I prefer the commission real estate market because you work hard, you put in the time you can make a lot of money mm-hmm. and that is the reward. Whereas if you want to go to your nine to five job, dial out a couple numbers, have a two hour lunch break and then go home and do it all over again and get paid, you know, a comfortable hundred thousand dollars. Good for you. That That's not for me. I, I would lose my shit if I knew I was only getting maxed out at that number, you know, again, still a great number, right? Not, not chirping that, but I just think, uh, you know, my mindset is, and, and this is definitely coming from sports that you put in the work, you get rewarded for good work and, you know, you get rewarded for that and you get the next deal, you get played in the next game. Right. So I, I just think with real estate, the sky's the limit. You got to have that eat what you kill mentality. Some people don't. And the people who don't, they're happy with a nine to five. Yeah, no, I, I'm, I'm always curious about that too. Cause um, same, same buddy. I can't, I obviously can't disclose his name cause he works for, uh, um, the government, like three letters, you know, what letters I'm referring to. Oh, yeah. Oh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, yeah. So I'm always like, and it's funny cause he's one of my best friends and he's always talking shit and saying crazy things. And I'm like, you give me good podcast material, um, to talk with other people about, but, um, he was talking to his one buddy and we were, we were grabbing coffee, um, a couple weeks ago, like upper West side and, he they both were saying to me they're just like you know sometimes we admire like the the role you're in commission only because then it's like i could really put in the work like unlimited hours and then like the work will take care of you and you get the reward from that um and then but the flip side is is like our retirement's all on our own um any like secure security that like a nine to five would provide that has to come from us. Um, so it's like that teeter totter of like, okay, do I just take that security and do I take a fixed check every week or every other week? Or do I really like have to like, you know, scrape my teeth to like eventually like get a fat chunk of change that like will allow me to be 
automatize and stuff like that. So that's that's why I asked that question because I battle with it all the time. <laughs> I'm just like, yeah, eh, you maybe, see it though. No, you do, you do. You see the benefit. Like, and when there is the benefit, you're like, I'm making the right decision. But then, like, when it's a tough day, you're like, fuck. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I wish I could have a salary, but like, that's that's a thing where it's like, you know, it's a roller coaster ride in real estate. You have mm-hmm. some good months where the market's hot. You have a bunch of buyers. You have good product. You have a good listing. It's going to sell. You yeah. Know, there are moments like that. And then when the yeah. market's hurting, like honestly, right now, our market is kind of hurting with the rising interest rates. Mm-hmm. It makes our deals a little bit harder for people to digest because there's just not enough return. But I know that, you know, I can make three times the amount of a nine to five on one deal, but it could take me a year to two years to get there. And then the other thing is, you know, you're your own boss in real estate. You know, you do have to keep yourself accountable, but you know, you can, you can do whatever you want. You're a 1099 self-employee. So you, you can go and you want to travel the world and still do the business. See, it's doable. Um, but I just think I look at it as, you know, it's a, it's a specific mentality when you do it. Um, it, it it's, you know, and I also tell this to some of the rookies that started in our industry, like, you know, Mark Zemilichap is notorious for hiring people out of college and mm-hmm. just telling them, like, if you call 500 people a week and you get 10 meetings a week, you can get three proposals out of the three proposals, you can get one listing and maybe that closes like, Oh, great. You know, for somebody who's coming in thinking that they can make a $200,000 check in their first year, it is doable. I've seen it happen. But the reality is you're really only going to make real money in this industry between three to four years into the business because you're going to be splitting with your, your checks with your boss. The house then takes 50% of that. You know, the, the commission does start to get cut in half more and more, but, you know, there is light at the end of the tunnel. So somebody who is committed on just putting in the work and knowing to get commission at the end of the day, they'll be successful in this business. But somebody who needs money now, like we had a guy quit because he a, didn't want to be on the phones and he was three months into the business and thought he was going to get paid already. You just have the wrong mentality for this. This is just not the business for you. Go, go do a nine to five and get paid you know, $15, $20 an hour. So some, then again, it's all depending on the person's, know appetite and what they actually need whether they have debt or whatever but you know it's it's tough for them to actually look at the commission and be like oh i'll get paid you know within a month two months definitely doable but i think the reality is somebody has to understand that it's going to be three to four years until they actually start seeing real money no exactly um and it's nice too (laughs) it is when when that hits the bank account hallelujah we're going out for a closing dinner yeah, it, literally. That's the best too. Is like doing the dinners, getting a nice little bottle of wine. Which just, you're... just did one. Yes, just did one last week. It was a six-hour dinner. What uh, um, what um, what's your what's your go-to? I mean, obviously, you're not getting the same thing every time. But like, do you change it up based on the deal, or like, are you just like whatever you're in the mood for? Because being you in try New York... to do with the client. I mean, it, it's really like whether it's the seller or the buyer. Yeah, make sure that they uh, they pick the spot. But no, we, last week we we're in New York City and I went to Zuma, which was a great spot. You know, 
Uh, where's uh where's zuma i gotta because that's the to me the best part about living in new york is the food so i gotta make a list of that so you said zuma. i saw i saw a crazy stat that you could try every every day a new restaurant in new york city and it would take you like 50 years to try every restaurant in new york city yeah no i someone told me that the other day and i thought that they were making that up but then all the different like spots that you pass or even like the places you don't even know are restaurants that are restaurants. Yeah. A little hole in the walls. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Those are sometimes the best spots too. No, Zoomers on uh, Madison Ave, 261 Madison Ave at uh, 39th street. Zoom is okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. Great no, spot. I actually There's one in Boston too. Yeah. Well, that's funny that you were here and then I was in Boston. It was like, we swapped for the weekend. Um... Well, we got to get together. <laughs> I know. Absolutely. So how often do you come to the city? I uh, try to do a trip maybe once every other month. I mean, a lot of our you know, institutional clients, their offices are based in New York City. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's the other thing with real estate. You can be in Texas or California and own properties across the country. So the, uh, the benefit is a lot of the guys that we work with is, um, is in New York City. So we try to get face-to-face contact with them. You know, we're trying to get away from the virtual calls and trying to get back to, you know, meeting people for coffee or taking them out to dinner or lunch and, you know, getting on a, a little bit more of a personal level when you're face-to-face. So we were there for 48 hours last week, met with about 10 different owners. Hopefully some business comes out of it. And mm-hmm. uh, we try to move on to the next deal. It's always about the next one. It, it really, it really is. How do you, um, do you have like an off switch or are you just like onto the next, onto the next, onto the next? Like, what is your, like, how is your mental process behind it? Yeah. I learned this on my, uh, my third deal that I did. It was, um, it was a decent deal on Newberry street. It was a little mom and pop client, but I was so excited about it because it was one where my mentor was able for me to, you know, I found the tenant, he was representing the landlord and I negotiated the deal all the way through. So, you know, I was so happy about, you know, running the process on my own, closing the deal on my own with his assistance and management, but, you know, really taking ownership of the deal. And I was like, so happy when that commission check hit and he was like, all right, when's the next commission check coming in? And that just hit me. I was like, crap, I have nothing in the pipeline. So the thing that I learned from that deal is like, Yes, you'll get paid in this industry, but it's about the next deal because in commission, you never know when that next paycheck is going to come. So as long as you can have a pipeline of deals that close, hopefully every other week is the goal. One or two closings a month is ideal. Um, but sometimes you can go on a little bit of a drought and it's, it, it's painful to not have a pipeline. So I learned early on that... Um, you kind of need to have a pipeline in order to be successful in this industry. So for me, it's always on to the next one. It's always using the last sale to open up a conversation for the next deal. Yeah. How do you, um, how do you mentally, uh, how do you mentally process like taking a a fat L like, what is your, like, okay, let's say, let's say that, um, let's say that someone is, this would, I don't know how it works in commercial, but I'll, I'll just use like, um, I don't know, say that there is on the residential side of things, say that I'm here in New York, there's a hypothetical situation because this has never happened. Say um, I'm doing an open house for like a a $10 million 
apartment, right? And someone comes into the open house. They have no representation. They want to buy the unit. They're like, I don't. I don't like, I don't have a broker. Um, and then you're like, you know, I could represent you da, da, da. you get like the process working with that. And then like, they kind of, uh, submit an offer with another broker, but don't say anything. And then you're like, yeah, shit, annoying. I just, I just missed out on like 3% of that. Exactly. Right. Yeah. How do you, cause you're obviously you're rattled. It's like losing a game. That's yeah. like the way you would like process it. It's like you lose a game. Do you, how do you let that not consume you um, and let it like drive you or like, how do you process all that? Well, for the personal side of things, I still skate twice a week. So I get to take <laughs> my anger out on the ice, but yeah. Uh, the, the other way I look at it, like for that specific example, do the deal because if you do that deal, great, that client is going to, if you do a good job and you're still in communication with them, they'll sometimes go and use you for the next deal. Because at least in, in our business, there's large portfolios. So if you're not hired for one deal and you're like, crap, they're already being represented by you know our competitor here is Atlantic Retail. All right, well, they use Atlantic for that sale, but let's send him a couple other deals that we have listings on and let's take him out to lunch you just, it's more of like a, you know, you got to be persistent and just always trying to give people information, always show them that, you know, the market better than the other, always know that you, you know, the comps better than anybody. I think that's crucial in real estate mm-hmm. and having that, you know, enough, you know, ammunition to go at them be like, you know what? I actually know the process more. I know the product more. I know the, the tenants more than the person you're using that client will realize it. And so if you miss out on one deal, you're definitely not going to get missed out on the second deal. Without so, a doubt. I, I kind of look at L's as just opportunities for us to kind of say like, all right, we understand you might have a relationship with them. That's fine. Go use them. But the mm-hmm. next time consider us because A, B, and C, you know, you, you name the reasons, but you know, we know we're confident in our own material. We know we're confident in the way that we run a process. So, you know, we like to think we're the best in the game, but we get beat out on deals. You know, we just lost a pitch last week and it's fine because we know that there's plenty of other properties that this owner has that, you know, in the future, if he ever wants to sell something that we're now going to be his first call. No, exactly. So, um, and we've been, we've been talking for close to an hour and a half now. So, you know, I always like to, I always like to wrap it up um, with a couple questions. So, yeah. A little rapid fire. Um, yeah, a little rapid fire. Um, so the first one, I always uh, – actually, I think I just got one for now. Uh, yeah, I just have one for now because we covered a lot. What this will, be, this will be the final question I have for you. So if you could go back – well, not go back in time. I hate that I always say that. But if today you can meet 18-year-old Alex Quinn, yep. what, what things – we'll divide it up in multiple questions. What things would you tell him and why just about like life in general? Um sports and then uh business um 18 year old alex is a little bit of a trouble child he uh let's think here i'd say you know i i wish at 18 years old i was a little bit more focused on meeting more people um i still think even to this day you know you need more people in your, in your network. Mm-hmm. Um, athletic Alex, 
maybe don't get injured as much. Maybe you had better, better knees and shoulders. Um, and then business wise, you know, I, I honestly think if, uh, if I started getting into real estate just as a side hobby, I mean, I, I just see it from a different lens now that it is such a great way to generate wealth and, and build equity, you know, and it's, it's easy to do 18 years old, you can go get your license. And I, I just wish I was able to kind of go and broker more deals, whether it be for my friends, condos or apartments or families and so forth. Um, yeah, just, I don't know if that answers any of the questions, but <laughs> no, no, it does. I mean, it's to each their own. You know what I mean? Yeah, true. I always, I always ask people. So, um, but no, dude, I, uh, I greatly appreciate it. Like, uh, your time. Cause I know how fucking busy you are too. So, nice. um, thanks for but, reaching out for this Been uh, always following along, but happy to be a part of it. And, you know, again, if anything that I can say here can help anybody else who's, you know, looking at real estate or struggling how to balance between sports school and then finding out what they're, you know, what the real life is like, you know, I'm always open, always able to, to get back. You know, there's a couple of mentors that gave me the opportunity. And so it's something that I want to kind of do on my part. So, you know, if anything that comes from this and helps somebody in the audience, you know, feel free to reach out to me. No, absolutely. And uh, you got to let me know next time you're in New York, we're definitely going to have to do dinner. And then uh, if you've got time, we could definitely see some sick places. Let's do it, my man. You're going to be my tour guide when I get to the city, though. Yeah, no, that's fine. So that's that's completely fine with me. It'll help me learn the city better. But, uh, but yeah, we'll do it up. So, yeah, I appreciate you doing this, and uh, let me know next time you're in New York. Thank you, my man. I appreciate the time. All right, I'll talk to you, boss. Talk to you soon.